Now, I know our series, 2016 is going to be a big year for us because as we've talked about, we're going to launch this new campuses initiative. It's going to take place over some years. And so, in order to, to get at that, to help us kind of prepare for that in this big deal, this really sea change for us, what we want to do is go back to the beginning of the early church and look at the launch of the early church. So grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, grab a Bible in front of you. It's page 1090 in those Bibles in the racks, and we're going to look at a portion of Acts chapter 1. We're going to hit some highlights in the book of Acts over these 10 weeks. So let's read beginning in verse 1. Acts chapter 1 and verse 1. In my former book, now, Luke, we know, is the author of Acts, and the former book he is referring to is the gospel that bears his name, the gospel of Luke. So, Luke is the author of Luke's, Luke is the author of Acts. Paul tells us in Colossians, by the way, that he is a medical doctor. I love medical doctors. <laughs> Married to one. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote to you, I'll come back to Theophilus, I, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many, many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my father promise, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them, two angels. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back. In the same way, you have seen him go into heaven. Now, what we have in these first 11 verses are the historical, is the historical record of the ascension of Jesus Christ. This incredible story of the return of Jesus to heaven following his earthly ministry, his death, his resurrection. Now Luke addresses Acts as well as the gospel to this man named Theophilus. Apparently he was a person of influence or some sort of stature. In the gospel Luke refers to him as, oh excellent Theophilus. Now, what's interesting is what this means, based on what Luke is saying even early on, is that one of the points Luke is trying to make in Luke is to show Theophilus that Christianity is true. 
Therefore, one of the ways we must think about the book of Acts is that Acts was written for people who have questions. People who are unsure about what they think about uh, Jesus Christ. People trying to figure it out. In other words, healthy churches aren't just a holy huddle uh, for uh, a, a few Christians, but rather a place for people who want to look into Christianity. And if that's you, we are glad you are here. Uh, because everything inside you and everything around you uh, tells you that obedience to God shackles you, it confines you, it constrains you. But the reality is when we love and serve the creator, the one who created us and the one who sent his son to die for us, we find liberation. Now Luke's point is to show Theophilus that that's not just religious fiction, but true. Now let's jump in, uh, but let's jump in at the middle of this passage. And I want you to look, let's begin with the question in verse 6. The disciples ask Jesus this, this question, Lord, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? John Calvin once said uh, in, in the height of the Reformation that the disciples make as many errors in this one question as there are words. <laughs> and he's right. When they ask about restoring the kingdom, they reveal that they were expecting this a political kingdom of domination that would vanquish the Romans because they hated the Romans. Now, how do we know that? We know that because they say, return the kingdom to Israel, restore the kingdom to Israel, revealing uh, their nationalistic, exclusive allegiance to their people, their soil, their homeland. In other words, it's like they're saying nuts to what's going on around the world. Are you going to come and deliver Israel so we can dominate? And then they begin this question by saying, at this time, they're like impatient children, wanting Jesus to come uh, immediately, wanting it on their time frame, wanting it now. Now all this to say, now follow me, that the worldwide expansion of the church of Jesus Christ that is recorded here in the book of Acts in just the church's first 30 years of its history, uh, this expansion that will transcend all racial, all ethnic, all national, all economic, all educational uh, boundaries was the very last thing on the minds of these apostles in Acts chapter 1. That's the point of verse 6. That's why this question is here in verse 6. Now that means when Jesus in verse 8 lays out this breathtaking, comprehensive, radical, worldwide mission of crossing all boundaries, all ethnicities, and being witnesses of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 8. In Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When Jesus lays that out, you better believe that every single brain cell and every single mind of each and every one of these apostles fried. They heard Jesus, but they didn't hear Jesus. 
Because at this point, they're not bold, they're not courageous, they're not outward oriented, uh, they're not sacrificial evangelists who love going around telling people about Jesus. Uh, no, they're, they're uh, stumbling, confused, inward oriented, they're nationalistic, uh, uh, they're typical men who, who wanted comfort and political power. Yet by the time we get to the end of the book of Acts, this verse 8 promise of the Holy Spirit and this call of Jesus to be witnesses to the ends of the world had not just become their reality, it had become a historical reality. And so these lowly, these uneducated, these backwater Galilean fishermen had in the course of their ministry turned the world upside down, launched a movement that reached the highest corridors of power and was just beginning. So these bold, these radical uh, words of Jesus, you will be my witnesses in your Jerusalem, then beyond and then beyond. Explain the scope, explain the extent of the churches, our, our mission. But what I'm saying is these apostles, just like you and me, were not up to it. No way. They didn't even get it here. And I do not want you to miss that. So the question then becomes, well, what changed them? What turned them upside down and inside out? What made them unstoppable? And what can we learn if we are going to be people of verse 8, if we're going to embrace this, the scope of this mission and be witnesses wherever we are, whatever we're doing? What I want to do over the next two weeks is suggest three things, three critical things, and I'm going to go deep on a couple of these. And today I want to look at two, and then next week I'll look at the third. And so what's the first? The first is... There is this unbelievable certainty about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were certain of the resurrection. Now, this is a truth issue. Now, let me clarify. When I say truth issue, I don't mean personal, subjective, relative truth. I mean historical, objective, universal truth. Now, let me show you this. Let me unpack this. Go back to the beginning. Look at verse 3. In verse 3, Luke makes a remarkable statement to Theophilus. He's arguing for Theophilus. Uh, and he makes a statement that, frankly, we're so familiar with, we've become numb to. Luke says, hey, Theophilus, I want you to know the following Jesus' resurrection. Jesus showed himself over and over, many convincing proofs showing that he was alive over a period of 40 days. In other words, what Luke is saying is Jesus didn't appear just once in his resurrected body and everyone say, oh, got it, that's easy, we get it now, we're ready, we're ready to go. No, no. Jesus appeared over and over, and the question you've got to ask is, why? Why the multiple post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ? Now, let me get to the answer. Today, most of us come to the Bible and think, well, you know, these first century people may be nice, but they were really gullible. 
And they were really gullible because they were superstitious and they were pre-scientific. So we would expect this kind of crazy stuff from the pages of the Bible. But when we read the resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ in in the Gospels, uh, we discover a resistance to the resurrection, not an acceptance. So, for example, Jesus appears in his resurrection body to women, then he appears to men, then he appears to two on the road to Emmaus, he appears in the upper room, he eats with some, he uh, reveals himself in his resurrection body to 500 people who are gathered together at once, he walks through walls, and always the reaction is shock and awe and a whole lot of unbelief. As a matter of fact, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, after Jesus has been appearing, we are told that many still doubted. Still doubted. So why? Why did uh, uh, Jesus keep appearing in in a variety of situations? And the answer is because first century people may be more superstitious than we are today or may have been. Uh, They were certainly pre-scientific in a way that, that we aren't, but they weren't gullible. Now hear me, they weren't gullible because they universally didn't believe in the resurrection. Greek and Romans, for example. Uh, the, the political leaders of, of Palestine uh, believed that the material body was bad, evil. It's like Christian science today. Uh, and therefore, the, the, the good news about death is that the soul would be released from the uh, evil, uh, bad body. And so the thought of a resurrected body to the Greeks and the Romans was abhorrent. It was the last thing they wanted. The Jews were a little different. The Jews in in the first century believed that there would be a general one-time resurrection at the end of history for everyone. But to believe in an individual resurrection in the middle of history, they thought was impossible. They had no categories for it. Uh, So, yes, these first century people were different than we are today. They were pre-scientific. They were more superstitious. We'll we'll grant that. But they weren't any more open to the resurrection of Jesus Christ than you and I would be today. They were just as skeptical about the resurrection, but skeptical for different reasons. This is why Luke emphasizes to Theophilus that Jesus appeared over and over, many, many convincing proofs. That's what's going on here in this first chapter. Now, we need to ask ourselves the question, why does that matter? Uh, What's at, at stake here? Well, it matters for a couple of reasons. Let me just mention two. It matters because this means that the disciples didn't make this up because they wanted to believe it, or they needed to believe it, or or they wanted to keep hope in Jesus somehow alive. You see, resurrection would be the last thing they believed in. They could not have, they did not make this up. 
Now there's a second reason this matters, and this is actually more important. It matters because it means, as others have pointed out, that today, many of us come to Jesus like we're shopping Jesus. We treat Jesus like a, cons a spiritual consumer product. And so we come to Jesus because we want to feel better. Or because we're going through a hard patch in our marriage, or because we've got this hard thing going on. And so it's a subjective thing, and we sort of treat Jesus like perfume, and we spray a little here, we spray a little there, and we hope that things are better. And so today, it's this practical, subjective, inspirational approach to Jesus. Give me just a little of Jesus. But Luke is saying, no, no, no. Christianity is practical, but it isn't ultimately merely practical. Christianity is subjective, but it isn't ultimately merely subjective. It's historically and objectively true. And we know that because Jesus kept appearing and reappearing to people who would have never, ever believed in the resurrection otherwise. And so the disciples, these apostles, didn't believe in Jesus because it made their life easier or simple or somehow smoother. Luke does not say, hey, Theophilus, I'm writing to you because this thing called Christianity worked for me and I hope it'll work for you. That's not what he says. Never mind, he doesn't say, never mind the facts. No. Now follow me. Christianity works, I mean practically and functionally, because it's true. But it won't work if people today only believe because they want it to work. Instead of believing it's true. Now let me illustrate this in the lives of the apostles. We come near the end of the book of Acts in Acts chapter 26, and the apostle Paul's in circumstantially a bad way. He's in prison, he's in chains. He's about to be sent to Rome. And so they bring him out and they place Paul before these big shot political leaders still in Palestine, uh, one by the name of Festus, the other, King Agrippa. And, and so Paul it makes a defense in Acts chapter 26 of uh, his faith in Christ before King Agrippa. He's speaking to King Agrippa. And interestingly, he doesn't say, hey, King Agrippa, you know what? I've gotten a buzz from Christianity. And you can too. No, that would be ridiculous. He's in chains. But you wouldn't know he's in chains because he's so bold. And so he keeps talking about the, to the king, to these political leaders who have the power of life and death over him. He's saying Jesus was raised from the dead. And then he says to King Agrippa, Agrippa, you've been the ruler here. You, you know this happened because this didn't happen in a corner. You know it's historically verifiable. It's public. Agrippa, you've known this. You, you, you have seen this. Now, all this to say, the key to fulfilling the radical mission 
of verse 8 in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 is understanding today, it's so critical for us in 2016, is understanding that the issue isn't, does Christianity make you feel better? Sometimes it will, sometimes it won't. The issue is, is it true? Is it true? And I belabor this because this is such an important issue for the church today. And then our experience orientation, our feeling orientation, uh, we're moving more towards, I'll get into Jesus if Jesus works for me, and we're losing sight of the rock-solid truth. The truth. And that's how Luke builds his case in chapter 1. And so the reason we as a church right now, 2016, are all in, and moving towards new campuses over time here in DuPage County. And the reason we are all in about being witnesses and calling you to be witnesses wherever you are, in your, your Jerusalem, in your neighborhood, in your office, uh, in your different groups, and in different parts of the county, different places in, in the world, uh, the reason we are all in is because we are certain of the historical public bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's the certainty of the resurrection that makes the church unstoppable. And man, do I want you to get that. Man, do I want you to understand that. All right? You with me? Okay, let me go on. Second, not only do we see certainty of the resurrection, but we see confidence in and submission to... Uh, uh, the ascended reign of Jesus Christ. Confidence in the ascension of Jesus Christ. So if the resurrection is a truth issue, the reason uh, Luke unpacks the ascension of Christ here is because the ascension is a lordship issue. Jesus answers the disciples' parochial question, Lord, are you at this time right now going to restore the kingdom to us so we can have power and the Romans won't? Jesus answers that question by ascending to heaven. He answers their question by his ascension, by demonstrating his authority his sovereignty, his kingdom rule over the entire earth by publicly and visibly ascending to heaven so they can see him. He's saying, I'm king. In other words, uh, uh, Jesus answers their question uh, by saying, submit all your questions to my sovereignty. He answers our question by saying, I'm not going to answer your question. I just want you to watch this. Now, wouldn't that be a cool way to answer people's questions? And that's exactly what Jesus does here. And furthermore, as the Apostle Paul unpacks aspects of the ascension, he tells us that this is exactly what the ascension means. It points to Jesus' sovereign rule in his reign. So, for example, look with me at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. 
and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ. When he raised him from the dead, the resurrection, and here we have the ascension, and seated him his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And now notice what is said in this last sentence. And God placed all things under his feet. In other words, Jesus is sovereign over all and appointed him to be head over everything, not a few things, but everything in the church. That would be everything in our lives, everything. So in other words, Paul is telling us the ascension is a tangible way of demonstrating that Jesus Christ controls everything. He's sovereign over all. That means, now hear me, even the bad things. The tragedy the brokenness, the chaos, the dysfunction. The ascension means that Jesus Christ is in heaven working all things together for good right now as Paul announces in Romans 8, 28. Now how is that? Well, it's because Jesus will turn evil back on itself, will turn evil against itself. And he will use evil to bring about good. And you say, what in the world? And my response is, he gave us the greatest example of that. The greatest example of this is the cross. Satan meant the, the cross for evil to destroy Jesus, to destroy any hope for any of us. But Jesus submitted to the cross and turned it into something wonderful, our salvation. And today we hear people say, you know, I, I, I would like to believe in God, but I can't believe in God because how could there be a good, God, a good God and so many bad things happening all around us? Uh, and then some of us, uh, even as followers of Christ, uh, struggle because we hit a bad spot. We go through some really bad, dark times. And we wonder, you know, does God, is God really there? Does God really love me? Does God really uh, care about me? And, and the ascension means no, no, no. Jesus is con in control. But the cross is the model for how Jesus is ruling the world. What do I mean? I mean, he's not eradicating bad things. That day will come. but he is using the bad for good. And you say, well, you know, thanks, but that's not very comforting to me because <laughs> I hate the bad things. I hate the bad way I'm going through right now. And sometimes the bad things are really bad. And man, let me say, I, I, I get that. I wrote a book about my experience with the bad things. But what I want you to understand is the response of the New Testament is that Jesus Christ didn't much like the bad things either. But he faced into them for you and went to the cross to die for you. And he turned the bad things into something beautiful, something wonderful, to rescue you and me and to offer us a forgiveness and a righteousness and eternal life and a hope that we cannot achieve on our own. 
The cross is the model for how Jesus is ruling the world. So confidence in the ascension, Jesus is ruling, means even if Jesus feels absent, and there will always be times where we feel like Jesus feels absent, or even if your life isn't working, or even if you're getting clobbered by some uh, really bad things. I mean, I've been there. That, that's been my experience. This ascension means that you know he is ruling. You know he is in control. You know he is sovereign. You know he is present. He is never absent. He will never forget about you. He will never lose track of you. And one day, just as the apostles saw Jesus leave earth, he will come again. He is coming again. And if you get this, it changes your life and keeps you from spiraling out of control. Now let me give you an example of this. I mean an extreme example of this in the book of Acts. Turn to Acts chapter 7. Verse 54, this is a story of a remarkable Christian by the name of Stephen. Stephen is preaching all through Acts chapter 7, and then it doesn't go well for Stephen. It was a bad Sunday. So we read beginning in verse 54, when the crowd heard this, the Jewish crowd in Jerusalem they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. Jesus had been talking, or Stephen had been talking about Jesus, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Standing at the right hand of God is a description of the ascension. In Ephesians 1, Paul talks about Jesus being seated at the right hand of God. Here Stephen sees him standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, verse 56, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And verse 57, at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Skip down to verse 59. When they, were, when they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. Stephen becomes here the first martyr in the church. Stoned to death because of his faith in Christ. Stoned to death because of his outspokenness, his outspoken commitment to the mission that Jesus had outlined in verse 8 of chapter 1. But Luke takes us behind the scenes and Luke, under inspiration from the Holy Spirit, tells us that what enabled Stephen to thrive in the greatest moment of crisis in his entire life was his vision of the ascended Christ. Now, now think about that. What Luke is telling us 
is this vision, this knowledge of the reign and the rule of Christ, uh, seeing Christ standing in heaven and, and the accompanying exoneration that meant for him because of the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Christ and the forgiveness of sins that Stephen enjoyed. That vision, that knowledge totally trumped, hear me, the condemnation he experienced on earth at the hands of men. Yeah, what's happening is really bad. But my Jesus is in control. He has ascended. And it's his knowledge, his vision of the ascended, ruling, reigning Jesus Christ that enabled him to stand up for Christ in the face of unbelievable hostility from his own country. To speak up about Jesus, to call the Jews out for their unbelief, and ultimately to be killed. And so what's my point? My point is this, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the ascension of Jesus Christ are real in your heart, if you believe the truth of Christ and the lordship of Christ at the core of your being, you will live the mission of Christ with the joy of the apostle Paul and the fearlessness of Stephen. And so as we move into this year, man, we are all in. I want you to be all in with us. I want you to be all in wherever you are, wherever God places you. Uh, but, but what's at stake is a truth issue and a lordship issue. You see, the early church was unstoppable not, not because the apostles were extraordinary. They were so very ordinary. But because Jesus is extraordinary. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are amazed at what you have called us to do in light of what you have done for us. And we praise you and we honor you and we worship you for Jesus. And we ask that you would work in our lives according to your grace that we might serve and honor and exalt you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.